And let that first reason for faith and belief in Jesus, let that sink in. He's talking about God's house. God's house is large. It has many, many rooms. He's not going to run out of space. And then see the end of verse 2. There's a place for you. I, I go and I prepare a place for you. So the argument for trust is based on three things. First, this is God's house. Not his hotel. His house. His children live with him in his house. Second, it's very space, spacious so that he never runs out of room. And then third, there's room design, a room designed for each of these disciples, even Peter. Even you and me, if we trust in him. Now, as you're probably familiar with, somewhere along the way, this idea of, of rooms or, or dwelling places, this got turned into mansions. This, this idea that we'd all have our, our own mansion. And the size of our mansion, it's directly related to our, freightful, our, our faithfulness or our fruitfulness in this life. But that's not actually what's being taught here. What's being taught here actually had some connection with first century culture. Because you see, when, when a son wanted to get married... He and his father would add a room to the father's house. When that addition was finished, the son would go and get his bride for the wedding, and they would move into the room that had been prepared for them. So a father with lots of sons could end up with a very large house, many dwelling places to accommodate these, these families. So likewise, Jesus is preparing a room for his bride, for his church right now. When the time is right, he will, he will gather us all and bring us to the Father's house. And there are at least a couple of comforting truths in this analogy. First, I think we can gather here, well, I know we can gather here, that heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place, not just some immaterial, ethereal, wispy state of being. And secondly, going to heaven, and this is a more comforting thought even, going to heaven is like going home. It's not like traveling to a foreign country where you don't know the language or the geography or the people or the customs or anything else. It's like going to a familiar, comfortable place where you're welcomed by a father who loves you and, and you live alongside brothers and sisters whom you know and whom you love. It's home. Later on in this chapter, it talks about your abode being with God or being in his abode, being in his, in his home. You're at home with him. So trust Jesus, trust God. In doing so, you have a place in the house. Indeed, in his household, as his child. John chapter 1, verse 12. To as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God. Verse 3 of, of this chapter, of chapter 14. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I think this is one of the most important little phrases in the passage, I will take you to myself. And this shifts the focus from a place to a person. And what I mean by that is where Jesus is, there is heaven. What is the essence of heaven? It's the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. This is why Martin Luther once said, I'd rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without him. Obviously, that's just sort of some rhetoric, but he's saying there's no heaven without Christ. 
So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, the essence of what he's saying is, I go this next 24 hours, I go through death for you. And Sunday morning, I'm going to come out the other side of death victorious, and I'm going to do that so I myself might be your living, dwelling place. So this text is referring to the second coming, but it's not so much about a heavenly destination as it is reunion and place with Christ. I will come again and take you to, what's he say? Myself. Therefore, disciples, trust. Trust me that I'm coming for you. I will come. I will take you. And trust me because the dwelling I have prepared for you is my my crucified, risen, and glorified self. Don't be troubled. I will come and I will take you to myself. I'm not just going to show you the way to the place I've prepared I'm not, or, or just give you a, a map so that you can kind of navigate how to get there. I promise, Jesus is saying, to come back and get you so that we can be together. And when you're with me, then you'll be home. Jesus reinforces this promise in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. One of the most insightful things Mark Hitchcock, our pastor, has ever said to me regarding the second coming, he didn't even say it to me in a teaching setting. It wasn't trying to instruct me. He actually said it in passing, but it was one of, one of the more insightful little pieces of truth that uh, I've ever received from him. We were talking about the second coming, and he said, what, we have to, what, what people have to remember is that the second coming is not an event. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus Christ, you will be not just concerned for, but you will long for his coming because you love him and you want to see him. Alexander McLaren, he said, The primitive church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or about heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were watching not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. So Jesus guarantees that if we put our full confidence in him, we'll be with him forever. It's his promise to us. Which brings us to the next point, Jesus and his comforting proclamation. And so this proclamation is set up by a question from Thomas. And even though Jesus has assured the disciples that he would enact a reunion with them, Thomas still had this to ask. Lord, we do not know where you're going. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap for doubting, but I just see him as one who is searching. Thomas was a rationalist before rationalism was cool. He he isn't afraid to ask questions. He wants to know. And in verse 6, Jesus answered them, or I should say answered Thomas with this bombshell. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, contrary to popular opinion, Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. There's there's no way to get to heaven unless we go through him. And as you know, the, the, the central article of pluralism, of secularism, this age in which we live and exist, the central article of pluralism is the rejection of this verse. You can believe all kinds of things and get a pass. You can believe all kinds of things and nobody cares. They just let you be you with your truth, whatever that means. But if you claim Jesus is the way, 
you better brace for impact. But we have to see, Jesus is very inclusive in this, in this verse. He's very inclusive in the sense that everyone is invited into a relationship with him. John 6.37 states, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's very inclusive. But his claims are at the same time extremely exclusive in that there is no other way to heaven except through him. He's the way. There's a story of a missionary who lost his way in an African jungle. He could find no landmarks and, and the trail had completely vanished. Eventually stumbling on a small hut, he asked the native who was living there if he could lead him out. And the native nodded and rising to his feet, he walked directly into the bush. And the missionary followed closely on his heels. For more than an hour, they hacked their way through a dense wall of vines and, and grasses. The missionary became worried. Are, are you sure this is the way? I don't see any path. The African chuckled and said over his shoulder, In this place, there is no path. I am the path. That's what Jesus is claiming here. I, I am the path. You don't know the way. I am the way. And so how does this mesh, mesh in, a, in a pluralistic society like ours that values variety and tolerance and, and has no room for exclusive truth claims? It doesn't mesh. It doesn't. And though Christianity still dominates by sheer numbers, the U.S. now has a greater diversity of religious groups than any country in recorded history. There's a Harvard professor named Diana Eck. She wrote in a book called The New Religious America. She wrote these words. This is how her book begins. The huge white dome of a mosque with its minarets rises from the cornfields just outside Toledo, Ohio. A great Hindu temple with elephants carved in relief at the doorway stands on a hillside in the western suburbs of Nashville. A Cambodian Buddhist temple and monastery is set in the farmland southeast of Minneapolis. She goes on, there are more Muslim Americans than Episcopalians, more Muslims than members of the Presbyterian Church USA, and as many Muslims as there are Jews. Los Angeles is the most complex Buddhist city in the world with a Buddhist population spanning the whole range of the Asian Buddhist world from Sri Lanka to Korea, along with a multitude of native-born American Buddhists. And I could cite different facts all evening. And given those facts, it's, it's helpful, though, to remember that the world of the biblical authors, the first century, was filled with, with paganism and pluralism as well. The, the Greek pantheon and the, and the Roman array of deities was, was so full of worship that the early Christians were seen as more atheistic than deistic because they only had one God and, and, and they only worshipped him through Jesus Christ. So in the midst of the first century and, 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 and 21st century diversity, which there are great similarities between the two centuries, the Bible makes some rather startling claims, claims that absolutely fly in the face of pluralism, fly in the face of religious tolerance. But we, we're not just proof texting. We're not just pulling a little verse out and letting it stand on its own. Now, John 14, 6 is more than sufficient in explaining exclusive, exclusivism to us. But here are a few other passage that, passages that give us, I think, overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Consider Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. You might write these down. 
Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read them to you. Jesus made it clear that the way is narrow and restrictive. He, he said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. John 3, verse 36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 5, 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's a, that's a doozy in the face of Islam, in the face of Judaism, in the face of these monotheistic theistic religions that claim we worship the same God. To, to worship God the Father is to worship God the Son. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. We looked at that last week. And then Peter boldly states, Acts 4, 12. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And 1 John 5.12, 1 John 5.12, whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son does not have life. You can't say it any plainer than that. These passages are extremely exclusive, and they're overwhelmingly clear. Jesus is the only way. His statements of divine authority are incompatible with homogenizing views of, of religious pluralism. The claims of Christ are outrageous to many, but they happen to be what G.K. Chesterton called the wild truth. The wild truth. So let's dive just a little more deeply into John 14, 6. When Jesus uses the phrase again, I am, he's once again claiming the divine name. The divine name, we look back at Exodus three fourteen. we see what we've called the tetragrammaton, which was called that way before we called it that. Ego, e, me, in the Greek, he is God in human flesh. That's who he's revealing himself to be as he's making these statements. He is the bread of life and the light of the world and the door and the good shepherd and the way, the truth, and the life and the resurrection and the life. And then next week we'll look at the vine. So Jesus claims to be God. And he's making these statements as one claiming to be God, a claim that no other world religious leader has made, not Muhammad, not Buddha, no one else did the miracles he did, lived the sinless life that, that, that he lived, no one died like he died in the place of sinners as a substitute, and absolutely no one rose again on the third day. There is a uniqueness to Christ that should offend you when he's lumped in with other religious figures, utterly different. So this verse begins with the word I, and in, in fact, 11 times in six verses, Jesus uses the personal pronoun I or me or my. And this is important because we're not saved by a, a principle or by a force, but we're saved by a person in Christianity. So Jesus did not say that he knew the way, the truth, and the life, or that he, he taught 
the way, the truth, and the life. He declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. So in answering all of life's questions, he, he doesn't offer a, a recipe or a bunch of rules or rituals to follow. Instead, he gives us a relationship with himself. His, his plan is wrapped up in his person. Again, he doesn't say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life, but I am rather the way. That is the only way. I'm the truth, the only truth. I am the life, the, the only source of life. Going further, all three of these concepts in verse 6 are, are what I would call active or dynamic. So without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without the life, there's, there's no growing. The context indicates the that the idea of the way predominates, predom, excuse me, predominates the whole phrase. The word way is used three times in verses 4, 5, and 6. And so we could put it like this. I am the way that reveals the truth about God and gives life to those who believe. Literally, I'm the way because I am the truth and the life. This might explain why the early church was often referred to as the way. Six times in the book of Acts, the early church is referred to as the way. It's not until Acts chapter 11 that Christians are, are started, <clears throat> they begin calling them Christians. It was actually a term of derision originally, baby Christs or little Christs. Prior to that, it was predominantly referred to as the way. There's only one avenue to salvation. With Christ removed, there's, there's no redemptive truth, no everlasting life, no way to the Father. Other religious systems try to, to bridge the gap between man and God. Jesus is the only one who has succeeded in bridging the divide. Someone pointed out that this trifecta of statements about Jesus, they parallel the order of Psalm 1, 1 through 3. And so that's why I started with that psalm tonight during our prayer time. I'm just going to revisit it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Talking about the way to walk in. So not in that way, but one who, who stands in another way. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That is the truth. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. That is the life, the way, the truth, the life. If someone is asking how they can be saved, point them to Jesus. He's the way. If someone is asking how they can be sure, point to Jesus. He's the truth. If someone is asking how they can be satisfied, point them to Jesus because in him there's life. And you might feel at this point that these comforts are, are wonderful, but at the same time, they seem just so very far away. They seem to matter deeply at death or at the second coming, but you know what's troubling your soul now is maybe that you don't know what's going on with your kids. What's troubling your soul now is that your marriage is in a bad place or your, your health is failing or you can't stand your job or you're just lonely. And if you're in one of those categories, you might be saying, is there some encouragement for faith that, that's a little bit closer than the second coming or closer than the end of my life? 
And here's where Jesus takes a turn in the passage. Look again at what Philip says in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So not show us the Father someday, but now. We want to see the Father now, and if we do, that will be enough. That will be sufficient. The King James Version uses sufficeth. I'm glad we don't have that translation anymore. Few words in the English language harder to say than sufficeth. But this takes us to the last point, the comfort we draw from believing in Jesus' person. So the emphasis of verses 7 to 11 are clear. Six times Jesus says virtually the same thing, that he and the Father are so profoundly one that his presence is the presence of God the Father. So verse 7a, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Verse 9, in response to Philip's request, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Verse 11. Therefore, Philip, you said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. I've showed you. He's here. As close to you as I am, Philip. Is that enough? Does it sufficeth? And surely Philip understood. But then there's today. Then there's 2019. 2,000 years removed from the physical Son of God walking the streets of Jerusalem and doing miracles and teaching truth. So you may be responding this way to Jesus. You may be saying, but, but you went away. You were there then. And when you were there, God was there. The Father was there in you. But, but now you're gone. I can't apply these truths today because I can't see you now. I can't respond as these disciples did. Which brings us to one final argument for why our hearts should not be troubled. And this time, he has us in mind very specifically. So not just the apostles, but these disciples, you and me, that would come much, much later. And to see the argument, we need to drop down a few verses. Verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you. I will come to you. So when the helper and the Holy Spirit came, Jesus came. When it says at the end of verse 17, he dwells with you and will be in you, he means I'm with you now physically and I will be in you spiritually when the Spirit comes. This is why Paul talks the way he does about the Holy Spirit about the Spirit of Christ and Christ himself. He, he does it so interchangeably. Listen to the words of Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of God dwells in you. That, that is the Spirit of Christ. That is Christ. This is not the second coming with the Spirit of God dwelling, as glorious as that will be, but this is now. He's gone away physically, and he's gone away physically precisely so that he can be near to all of his own. He can be in and near all of us, not just in these 11 in the upper room in John chapter 14. He's not left us as orphans. He's come to us, which means he is right now more interested in 
and more caring about your parenting and, and your marriage and your singleness and your failing health and your difficult job and your loneliness. He, he's more into that than you could ever imagine because he did not come to us as an observer but as a paraclete, which means what? What does that word mean? A comforter. He comforts us by being with us, by being in us. A tremendous outflow of that, of that statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. I like what Albert Moeller writes. If all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, then Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion, then Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, then Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of, demotion, of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self, then Oprah will do. But if we need a savior, only Jesus will do really well said. Only Jesus gets us home. Billy Graham, who died February 21st, 2018, so we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of his passing. On his tombstone, he wanted one word printed as an epitaph, preacher. That's all he wanted. Well, his children almost granted that. Uh, on his tombstone is written his birth date, his death date, and then preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then under that, John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Mark will finish us next week. He'll finish with uh, the vine, and, uh, and then the week after that, we'll have a business meeting, and then we'll, uh, we'll break adult Bible study because of the, the needs of our student ministry and the way construction is impacting that. All right, so let's pray together. I'll let you guys go. Father, again, we, we look to you for, for all things. We recognize together just how gracious and kind you are to us. We confess that, um, that we look to lesser things to satisfy. We try to find life where there is no life. And so, God, we just lay that down, and, and tonight together we look to Jesus. He is the way, and he's the truth, and he is the life. And Lord, we recognize together that you have not left us as orphans. You've sent a great comforter. We have the Spirit. And Lord, we know that, um, that he will guide us, that he will protect us and preserve us. Preserve us for that day when you do call us to yourself. Be that through death or be that through your coming. We look to be with you uh, in the Father's house. What a day that will be. Father, we um, thank you for this time together. Pray for this group of people as they leave tonight, that they would uh, just be ambassadors for you, that they would not cower in the face of pluralism and secularism and all, all these other isms that assault the truth claims of Christ, but they would stand on these words from Jesus himself. It's in his name we pray. Amen.